0: we finished Ezekiel 22 Ezekiel is in Babylon and he's talking to the exiles in Babylon he is prophesying about Jerusalem because Jerusalem is about to be taken down by Nebuchadnezzar and what he's doing is explaining to the exiles what's about to happen he is not talking to Judah directly that's Jeremiah's job who's his contemporary so the sequence of events in 22 he starts off with false prophets who are allegedly speaking in the name of God but leading people astray. He goes from there to the priests who are not doing the stuff that they're supposed to be doing and then from there he goes to the leadership or the secular government if you will that has become corrupt so they're using their positions to enrich themselves at the expense of people and the last thing he goes after is the people themselves because people are not stupid. And when they see everything in the government arrayed against them, and everything in the government being corrupt, what people tend to do is, well, why am I being a fool and being honest? Nobody else is, so I might just as well get in there and get mine as best I can. So the corruption, at least in 22, starts with the prophets, goes to the priests, goes to the secular government because those folks are the ones who have the charge of representing God. The idea there being, since Israel has a covenant, that if the religious authorities jerk the secular authorities up, that the secular authorities will pay attention. So the sequence of corruption, if you will, starts from people who claim to be speaking in the name of God. And they're false prophets, they're not really. So now we're going to get to 23, and we're going to have a metaphor here. It's going to be a metaphor of two women, and the one is named Ahola, and the other one is Aholaba. Those two words are variations of the Hebrew word for tent. And so Ahola means her tent, and Aholaba means my tent is in her and as you remember your Israelite history when the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom split the northern kingdom set up in Samaria and set up their own government and in fact they changed the dates of God's appointed times they set up idols the whole thing and Jerusalem continued to have the temple in their midst so Ahola set up her own tent, if you will. Aholabah had the tent of God in her midst. So, picking up on 23. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, there were two women, the daughters of one mother. They played the whore in Egypt. They played the whore in their youth. There their breasts were pressed and their virgin bosoms handled. Ahola was the name of the elder and Aholabah the name of her sister. They became mine, and they bore sons and daughters. As for their names, Ahola is Samaria, and Holobah is Jerusalem. One of the things that I don't understand here is the idea of Ahola being the elder and Aholabah being the younger, because it's in fact the other way around. Judah is in fact older than Joseph, which of course means that Judah is older than Ephraim. And furthermore, Judah under David and Solomon and the United Monarchy were the entirety of Israel. And only after Solomon's death, when his son messed up, did the northern kingdom split away. So just got no idea what to do with the idea that Ahola is the elder. The point is, Judah has always had the blessing of leadership, kingship, primacy in in Israel from the days back in Egypt when Jacob blessed his sons. He's also physically older. So Judah remains in Jerusalem when they split. So here where it says Ahola, Samaria, is the elder, and Aholabah is the younger, that's why I don't understand it. What he says is the word in Hebrew for older is gedol, greater, gedolah. And my translation here says that Ahola is the name of the elder. And what Mike is saying is is the Hebrew, it could be also translated as greater. And you had 10 tribes with Ephraim as opposed to three tribes. Then that may be exactly what's going on. So we're all the way down to verse 5. Ahola played the whore while she was mine, and she lusted after her lovers, the Assyrian warriors, clothed in purple governors and commanders, all of them desirable young men, horsemen riding on horses. And again, the idea of horsemen riding on horses indicates nobility, because most soldiers moved on foot, and so being able to afford a horse, first off, and having a horse be your mode of transportation in a war was an indication of somebody of higher status verse 7 she bestowed her whoring upon them the choicest men of assyria all of them and she defiled herself with all the idols of everyone after whom she lusted she did not give up her whoring that she had begun in egypt for in her youth men had lain with her and handled her virgin bosom and poured out their whoring lust upon her. Now, going back to Egypt, what I don't know here is whether he's talking about Joseph in Egypt or whether he's talking about the various political alliances that the two kingdoms tried to make. For example, Syria and Ephraim, were attacking Judah. Judah goes up and makes a treaty with Assyria to help him out, instead of trusting in God. Similarly, at some point, both Judah and Samaria tried to make treaties with Egypt. And then we'll see in a minute that Judah is going to go try and make a treaty with Babylon. God regards all of this as whoredom. He also regards the fact that when they make treaties with these pagan nations, they wind up picking up pagan gods in that process. So the pagans, when they come down and make treaties with them, bring their gods. And one of the things that happened, starting with Solomon, is Solomon made lots and lots of alliances, and part of the alliance deal was you picked up the daughter of whoever you were making your alliance with. That, by the way, has been the way of the world ever since the world began, the idea of swapping children in marriage to cement a treaty. That happens all the time. Well, Solomon was more prolific at that than anybody else. So these babes came in, and he married them for political reasons, and they all brought with them the gods that they grew up with. Instead of turning them all into Hebrews, what Solomon did is built them all shrines and altars and stuff all over the place so that they could worship their own gods. And the same thing happened in the northern kingdom. You remember Ahab when he married Jezebel. Well, Jezebel brought along the priests of Baal, and we had the whole business with Ezekiel and so forth. So this idea of political alliances leading to religious whoredom goes clear back to Solomon. And probably before that, I just don't remember out of hand whether David did. David had a few wives also. I don't remember whether they were pagan, and I don't remember whether he had altars for them. Maybe down to verse 9. Therefore I delivered her in the hands of her lovers, into the hands of the Assyrians, after whom she lusted. These uncovered her nakedness, they seized her sons and her daughters, and as for her, they killed her with the sword, and she became a byword among women when judgment had been executed on her. So what we've just finished is the northern kingdom, the ten tribes, being taken out by the Assyrians and scattered. That's where we are in the history at the end of verse 10. So verse 11 Her sister Aholabah saw this, and she became more corrupt than her sister in her lust and in her whoring, which was worse than that of her sister. So you've got the two nations. They split. The northern kingdom, for lots of reasons, sets up idols and changes God's appointed times. God is not pleased with any of this. So God takes them out. Judah as of right here and several other places, is regarded by God as being much worse than Samaria. So the question that one has to ask is, why didn't Judah get taken out until 125 odd years later? Furthermore, what happened to Samaria, the northern kingdom, is they got scattered and lots of theories on where they are today, but officially nobody knows. The Jews have got people going all over the place, and they're finding little pockets of people who are Ephraim. They find them as far away as Thailand, where you have these people who are following Jewish customs, dietary laws, and everything else. have got no idea why, but they are. And these are typically regarded as Benai Manashi, sons of Manassas. So the question that you have to ask, or at least I have to ask, is if Judah was so much worse, then why did Samaria go first? And second, why did Samaria get scattered and sanded off while Judah was maintained as a unit? Goes to Babylon, spends some time in Babylon, comes back. So it isn't the case that we need to keep things operating and so forth for a while. And as I say, God's opinion of Judah is much lower than his opinion of Samaria. Let me give you my two cents on it. It goes back to Jacob's blessing his sons. And what Jacob says when he blesses his sons is the Messiah is going to come from Judah. So we have to keep Judah intact no matter how bad and corrupt they become the fact that they last longer down south and the fact that they are exiled as a unit as opposed to being just scattered all over the world has to do with the fact that you need judah to get yeshua you have to have a son of david you have to have him be the messiah And in order to do that, you have got to maintain an identifiable Judah. So Judah is treated differently, even though the prophet here says that they are objectively much worse. And the reason for that is we need Judah in order to get Yeshua. Timing. What you have to look at is the rest of the world. You've all done the Bible geography in here, where we do the maps. And what you have is Europe and Asia here, and you have Africa down below. Up until the Phoenician Empire, the only way to get between those two was to go through Israel. You couldn't move armies over blue water until Phoenicia. And similarly, you had the Arabian Desert over here, and you couldn't move an army through the desert. So Babylon invades Egypt, Egypt invades, you know, all that kind of stuff. It goes through Israel. And... For those of you who are bird hunters, when you go through hunting birds, what you do is you pick up burrs on your genes. Well, what you're doing is you're transplanting burrs. So what happens is you wind up with synagogues all over the Mediterranean basin. Then the next thing that happens is the rise of Greece. And what Greece does is sets up a common language in the Mediterranean basin, Koine Greek. So you can go anywhere in the basin and you can talk Greek and somebody will understand you, much like English is today. The final thing that you need are Pax Romana, which is to say Roman roads. And the thing that Rome brought was that you could travel safely anywhere in the Mediterranean basin because the Romans would crucify you if you got out of hand. So you wound up having jews and synagogues all over from egypt up through italy and greece and everywhere else which means that the word of god the torah was pre-planted all over the mediterranean then you had greece which meant everybody could talk and then finally you had rome which meant everybody could travel safely and that's where god put his messiah so when the messiah is crucified and raised and his disciples go out from there as apostles go out from there. it's like supercooled water that's just waiting for something and all of a sudden it flash freezes. And you have the gospel and Christianity spread throughout all of southern Europe, all the way over to India, south into Egypt. but all of that terrain has been prepared beforehand. And that's why that's the timing. The terrain had to be prepared. And once it was prepared, then you had the Messiah. And then, by the way, back to Ezekiel here, where it says Judah was worse than Ephraim. So what happens is Judah is going to get sanded off by Nebuchadnezzar in the next chapter, if we get that far. And they're going to go into exile. Well, they're going to spend more than 70 years in exile. And then as the Medes and the Persians, the Persians take over from the Babylonians, they're going to get permission to come back. Most of them don't. But what they do is they come back and they set up a temple. They set up a temple system. And as you say, it's like 400 years that they're there as a going concern. You get the Messiah born. You get him crucified, raised from the dead, and what 40 years later back into exile and the romans sand the place flat so the only reason that they're allowed to come back out of exile is to get the messiah born their exile has never been nullified they just get a partial reprieve in order to have a messianic event and then it's back into exile joseph leads into exile going into exile joseph goes first Judah leads coming back. That starts with Egypt. Joseph is the first one that goes into exile. He prepares a place for the rest of the nation. And then when they come back, Judah leads coming back. So Joseph leads going out, Judah leads coming back. So you have Samaria, which is Joseph, leads into exile. So Samaria gets sanded off. Joseph is the first one to go into exile, followed by Judah judah is the first one to come back and as we just went through the whole purpose of their coming back the first time was for a messianic event judah also led coming back in 1948 it is my opinion and hope that we are in fact setting up for the next messianic event that's the pattern and so what you see is The pattern holds that started clear back the sale of Joseph into slavery. The same pattern continues. We're seeing that pattern play out today. And so we're seeing Judah come back. They're the first ones back. And I believe that what they're there for is so that there's somebody to meet the Messiah. And as Netanyahu used to joke, when he comes, we're going to ask him, So, is this your first visit to Israel? Well, actually, I'm in verse 11. Her sister Aholibah saw this, and she became more corrupt than her sister in her lust and in her whoring, which was worse than that of her sister. And that's what led to this rant that I just went on. Why were things done in this order? 12. She lusted after the Assyrians, governors and commanders, warriors clothed in full armor, horsemen riding on horses, all of them desirable young men. And I saw that she was defiled, they, they both took the same way. But she carried her whoring further. She saw men portrayed on the wall, the images of the Chaldeans portrayed in vermilion, wearing belts on their waist with flowing turbans on their head, all of them having the appearance of officers, a likeness of Babylonians whose native land was Chaldea. When she saw them, she lusted after them and sent messengers to them in Chaldea. And the Babylonians came to her, into the bed of love and they defiled her with their whoring lust and after she was defiled by them she turned from them in disgust so we talked about this earlier you have these various political alliances that judah has made to fend off various other threats and i will suggest to you that this description of the Chaldeans and the description of the Assyrians, good-looking guys, flowing turbans, and all that kind of stuff, what that is describing is military power. The reason they're making alliances is for military power. So when they're having trouble with Syria and the northern kingdom, they make an alliance with the Assyrians. When they have trouble with Egypt... They make an alliance first with the Assyrians, and that doesn't work, and then they make an alliance with the Babylonians. So these are all describing military alliances which Judah has made in order to avoid being conquered by somebody. And as we said earlier, these alliances come with pagan gods. Pagan gods come into the picture when the alliance comes into the picture, and Israel likes to be cosmopolitan so whenever anybody brings a new god in ooh, look at that isn't that interesting oh i'm so fascinated with yoga or i'm so fascinated with whatever and so they wind up adopting the religious practices of these people that they make military alliances with in addition to which you also get intermarriage involved which hastens the process but god regards it all as adultery 18. When she carried on her whoring so openly and flaunted her nakedness, I turned in disgust from her, as I had turned in disgust from her sister. Yet she increased her whoring, remembering the days of her youth when she played the whore in the land of Egypt and lusted after her paramours there, whose members were like those of donkeys and whose issue was like that of horses. Very graphic. Thus you longed for the lewdness of your youth. When the Egyptians handled your bosom and pressed your young breasts, so what he's saying here is, even though Egypt may have been the enemy de jour, which caused them to make an alliance with the Babylonians, the fact that she is temperamentally a whore harkens back to her time with Egypt. She remembers fondly, in her youth, the. Fooling around that she did in Egypt and carries on then with the other empires that she winds up making treaties with. 22. Therefore, O thus says the Lord God Behold, I will stir up against you your lovers, from whom you're turned in disgust, and I will bring them against you on every side the Babylonians and all the Chaldeans, Pekod and Shoah and Koah, and all the Assyrians with them. Desirable young men, governors and commanders, all of them, officers and men of renown, all of them riding on horses. By the way, Pekod, Shoah, and Koah may be tribes that are part of the Babylonian Empire. At least my commentary says so. And the commentary is not sure. It seems like that might be who we're talking about. The idea is she has made military alliances. She has broken those military alliances. She shifted alliances and so forth. So when it says you were disgusted with the Babylonians, that's because she shifted military alliances. And what God says is, all right, you've played the whore with all these. We're just going to bring them all. And that's what's going to happen. 24. And they shall come against you from the north with chariots and wagons and a host of peoples, They shall set themselves against you on every side with buckler, shield, and helmet. I will commit the judgment to them, and they shall judge you according to their judgments. So the idea here is God, of course, is going to bring these foreign nations, and the foreign nations are going to deal with Israel according to the foreign nations' system of justice. Or rules of war, if there are any rules, or... What do you do with the conquered people? That kind of thing. God is not going to intervene. And one of the other things that happens is God looks at what these people are doing to his people, and God starts to get grumpy with the people he brought against his own. And the way I would describe it, and God describes it too other places, is I wanted you chastised, but these folks engaged in unnecessary roughness And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to then deal with them because they went way beyond what I had in mind. And I will direct my jealousy against you that they may deal with you in fury. They shall cut off your nose and your ears and your survivors shall fall by the sword. They shall seize your sons and your daughters and your survivors shall be devoured by fire. By the way, this idea of disfiguring a adulterous woman is still quite alive and well in Afghanistan, for example, right now. And one of the things that the Taliban has been doing is women that they, for some reason, regard as loose, they will cut their noses off. That kind of thing is alive and well today. This is not metaphorical. 26. They shall also strip you of your clothes and take away your beautiful jewels. Thus I will put an end to your lewdness and to your whoring begun in the land of Egypt, so that you shall not lift up your eyes to them or remember Egypt anymore. Remember, we just read a few verses back that one of the things that is happening with Judah is she remembers fondly the whoring she did with Egypt. And so she continues that practice with the other empires that she makes treaties with. And what he says at the end of this is, you're not going to remember Egypt anymore, which is to say, you're not going to be able to recall back to the good old days in Egypt when you were doing your thing, because that's going to be wiped out of your mind. 28. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will deliver you into the hands of those whom you hate into the hands of those from whom you turned in disgust. And they shall deal with you in hatred and take away all the fruit of your labor and leave you naked and bare. And the nakedness of your whoring shall be uncovered. Your lewdness and your whoring have brought this upon you because you played the whore with the nations and defiled yourself with their idols. You have gone the way of your sister. Therefore, I will give her cup into your hand. Stop there for a second one of the things that I meant to comment on, back in verse 25, and I will direct my jealousy against you. One of the things that is fashionable in our culture today is the idea of regarding jealousy as somehow being a pathological emotion. It is not. Jealousy is a healthy emotion. And what jealousy is, is when something that belongs to you is being interfered with, and you rise up to protect the thing that is yours. This idea of God being jealous over Israel, which is to say, I have a covenant with you. I don't want you making covenants with other gods. It makes me jealous. In our society, jealousy is somehow regarded as, oh, well, he's, he's just jealous. Well, he may be jealous without any reason, or he may be jealous with a reason, in which case jealousy is a healthy emotion, not a negative one. But like anything else, it would be negative too. I mean, you may be jealous over something that doesn't belong to you. Then your jealousy is wrong. 31 again. You have gone the way of your sister. Therefore, I will give her cup into your hand. Thus says the Lord God. You shall drink your sister's cup. It is deep and large. You shall be laughed at and held in derision. For it contains much; you will be filled with drunkenness and sorrow, a cup of horror and desolation, a cup of your sister Samaria. You shall drink it and drain it out, and gnaw its shards and tear your breasts. Very common biblical metaphor: drinking a cup of wrath, if you will. In fact, it goes all the way into Revelation, where God pours out bowls of wrath and so forth. For I have spoken, declares the Lord God. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have forgotten me and cast me behind your back, you yourself must bear the consequences of your lewdness and whoring. The Lord said to me, Son of man, will you judge Ahola and Aholaba? Declare to them their abominations, for they have committed adultery, and blood is on their hands. With their idols they have committed adultery. And they have even offered up to them for food the children whom they had born to me. And again, one of the consequences of the pagan religions, and, and it's endemic all over the whole world, is human sacrifice. So when Israel starts flirting around with foreign gods, they start doing human sacrifice to include their own children. And God is not pleased. 38. Moreover, this they have done to me. They have defiled my sanctuary on the same day and profaned my Sabbaths. So the idea here is they go from worshiping pagans, where they sacrifice their own children, and then they turn right around and come to the temple and do the ritual worship of God. They just move seamlessly between one God and another, and Jehovah has simply become one of many gods to them. 39. For when they had slaughtered their children and sacrificed to their idols, on the same day they came to my sanctuary to profane it. And behold, this is what they did on my house. They even sent for men to come from far, to whom a messenger was sent, and behold, they came. For them you bathed yourself, painted your eyes, and adorned yourself with ornaments. You sat on a stately couch with a table spread before it, on which you had placed my incense and my oil, The sound of a carefree multitude was with her, and with men of the common sort, drunkards, were brought from the wilderness. They put bracelets on the hands of the women and beautiful crowns on their heads. Remember, we started off with the description of the soldiers, if you will, of these empires that they lusted after. Flowing turbans, riding horses, sashes around their waists. What we have degenerated to is drunkards. The whole thing starts as military allies and it winds up as the common drunkard. And, oh, by the way, just like any adulterous wife, she has taken the food and the oil given to her by her husband, God, and has used it for her lovers, which God is not pleased with, obviously. So all the way down to verse 43. Then I said to her, who was worn out by adultery, (laughs) She's been doing it so much, she's worn out. Then I said to her, who was worn out by adultery, now they will continue to use her as a whore, even her. It starts off as infidelity, that she's an eager participant in, and it winds up as prostitution, which is involuntary. For they have gone into her as men go into a prostitute. Thus they went into Ahola and Aholaba, lewd women, But righteous men shall pass judgment on them with the sentence of adulteresses and with the sentence of women who shed blood because they are adulteresses and blood is on their hands. I have no idea who the righteous are because there aren't any of them in Jerusalem. I just don't know. One of the commentaries I read speculated it might have been the prophets or it might have been apostles. I had no idea. 46. For thus says the Lord God, Bring up a vast host against them, and make them an object of terror and a plunder. And the host shall stone them, and cut them down with their swords. The penalty for an adulterous wife is stoning. They shall kill their sons and their daughters, and burn up their houses. Thus I will put an end to lewdness in the land, that all women may take warning and not commit lewdness as you have done. And they shall return your lewdness upon you and you shall bear the penalty for your sinful idolatry, and you shall know that I am the Lord God. Pretty grim. They made alliance with foreign nations, and they did that for military protection. That's the first problem, because God should be their protection. God promises he'll protect them if they stay faithful to him. Rather than staying faithful to God, they made military alliances. Those military alliances came with pagan idol worship and so they then went into idol worship in addition to idolatry which is turning to someone else for protection rather than their husband. They then started worshiping the gods of those others and that worship then led them into bloodshed, dishonesty, corrupt government and all the rest of it, child sacrifice. But they have gone so far downhill that God can't stand the smell anymore.